Well, my name is Jason Epperson, and uh, I'll tell you a little about myself, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll kind of dig into it. I, just so everyone knows, I'm going to try to talk for about 30 minutes is all, uh, and then I'd love for you to ask questions about, because the reality is there's a lot of different contexts in here. Some of you guys are from church context, some of you are parachurch context, and so I just thought uh, I'd love for you to kind of be able to ask questions, and I'll try to at least give you some of my thoughts on it, but I'll for sure kind of give you what I've done the last 17 years with students. And that's, that's all I, I am by no means an expert, but I love st- students and I love what God's doing in the world and I love connecting those two dots. And so uh, my name's Jason. I'm married. I have three kids. Uh, my wife's name is Lacey. I have a nine-year-old, a six-year-old, and a four-year-old. And I've been in youth ministry now for 17 years uh, at different types of churches. I, my first church I worked in, was a church of about 60 people in rural Nebraska. It's while I was in college. And uh, everything rural is that town, if that makes sense. It was a town of 1,000. I would travel 20 minutes to work there on the weekends with students. And uh, it was cool to see what God did even in that setting, to put on my heart, if you want to change the world, uh, the, the reality is I think youth are the ones to do it. I think to raise up youth is, is, what, is what Jesus did himself, and it's what God kind of called me to at a very young age. Actually, I was almost a youth when I started working with youth. And so, uh, besides that, then I moved to a church in Champaign, Illinois. Uh, and in the middle of that, I spent two years working with an organization leading short-term missions trips. And I led them basically all over the world in different locations. Uh, but the strategy they had there, to me, was one that I really liked. Because it was not short-term missions trips to gain experiences. It was really short-term missions trips to raise up people to go. Uh, and that was the whole purpose of the organization. And because of that, it really shaped my perspective of uh, what youth ministry and how to raise up students to be kind of world changers is the phrase that I'm going to use. Uh, and so then after that, I was in Illinois for 11 years. And uh, when I was there, I was a youth minister as well as a teaching pastor and kind of chaplain for Illinois football and basketball teams. So kind of that college age, high school age, middle school age has kind of been my sweet spot for a long time. Uh, then I moved to Louisville, Kentucky, and I was here for two and a half years. And I, my job here was I kind of oversaw all the student ministries on all the campuses of Southeast. And uh, when we got here, missions was important in the church, but the truth is the student ministry hadn't done missions trips for a long, long time. And so we really just restarted a, a missions program. And right now, I think this next year, there'll be like uh, four to 500 different students that are going international. Uh, and those aren't like... Uh, those are trips with the same strategy to eventually someday either get them on the field or support someone on the field, if that makes sense. And so, uh, but that's kind of, now I live in Omaha, Nebraska, thus the N on my chest. Uh, it was free. I'm actually not a Nebraska fan, so you can make fun of them. I don't care. Uh, and so, but I'm in Nebraska now, and when I got there at the church, they didn't have a youth ministry. And so my first year I spent there really starting a youth ministry. Uh, they had, I shouldn't say they didn't have one. They didn't have one that was uh, multiplying students. That's the way I would say it. They had some students that hung out. It was a youth group, not a youth ministry, if that makes sense. And so uh, in the last year, we've kind of started that back up. I still come back to Louisville about every six to eight weeks to preach, to talk, and kind of consult with the executive team here and work with them on kind of raising up students and mission stuff. And so now that I'm done, uh, let me uh, pray, and then let's talk about what Jesus has for us. How about that? God, you're so good. I thank you so much for this room and who's here. I thank you for all the diversity that's here, uh, from where people live to how they grew up to the passions that they have. And God, I pray that your spirit will continue to make us one. I pray that uh, you give me the words you desire for me to say, that you take away the things I have planned you don't want me to. Uh, God, you are so good, and I am not, but I'm so blessed to be with these people. Lord, I love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'll tell you a story. Her name was Megan. Uh, I met her when she was 12 years old. Uh, she walked into a dodgeball event. Uh, I'm in youth ministry, remember? That's what we do. And so uh, we were playing dodgeball in the gym, and this girl walks in. She was 12 years old. And uh, the first time she walked into the room, uh, literally what happened was she walked into this gymnasium, and a dodgeball came flying across the room. And this was when we used rubber. This is when we played, like, tough guy dodgeball. And it was a rubber dodgeball. It hit her. Her glasses went flying off. It cut her on the side of the face. And I was the youth pastor who threw the ball. Hmm. She walked into it, and so I remember, like, running, like, as you throw something and you realize this is bad, I'm, like, running after her. And so before she hits the ground, I hold on to her. I walk her over to the stage, and we get some ice for her face, and we fix her glasses-ish, and uh, we start to have a conversation. Uh, that was Megan's first time she ever walked into a church. 
uh, hurt him. And so that we know how to greet people in the U.S. And so uh, what happened next was we started this relationship, and she started coming to our middle school ministry. She was in seventh grade uh, or sixth grade at the time, something like that. And she started coming on the weekend. She started studying the Bible. And I realized Megan's story was pretty different than, than uh, some students in our ministry, but, but almost the same as every kid uh, in the U.S. And the story was this, is when, the day before that, uh, she was standing upstairs in her house, and she heard her parents fighting downstairs. Her dad was a college basketball coach. Uh, her mom uh, was like, uh, like helped nurses out, uh, and she worked in a hospital. And that night, her family was, mom and dad were fighting. And she heard her dad scream, and she could tell it was a little more intense than usual. So she walked to the edge of the banister, and as she stood at the edge of the banister, uh, she saw her dad with a bag getting ready to walk out the door. As he was walking out the door, Megan says to her dad, Dad, please stay. And her dad's response was, You're just like your mother. I'm leaving. And he walked out the door. So Megan's uh, first, uh, she collapsed on the floor. Her mom went upstairs. They cried. Of course, Megan was mad at her mom. Because Megan thought it was her mom's fault because her dad was leaving. And, uh, but you know what? Instead of Megan running anywhere else, for some reason, God brought her to a dodgeball event. She walked in the dodgeball event, and I smoked her in the face of the dodgeball. Uh, but you know how the story, that's how the story started. Uh, but the story doesn't end there. Uh, Megan came into our ministry, and all of a sudden, she started doing our middle school ministry, and she did a one-day service project. It was on the north side of town, and it was in an in a, in a area that we would have kind of called, like, uh, the north side was here where some of the projects were at, government subsidized housing. We were doing one-day service projects there. We were partnering with another organization called Abide. And uh, she did that a couple different times. And then by the time she was in eighth grade, she was still a part of our ministry. She was still a part of our Bible study. She was bringing friends to Christ. Megan introduced more people to Christ in a two-year period of time than any student I'd ever met. Uh, she was falling in love with Jesus. She was passionate about him. Her father still was like the deadbeat dad who occasionally would show up. He moved actually out of state. Uh, and then something happened. When she was an eighth grade, going to be freshman, we took her on a three-day trip to Cincinnati, Ohio, to work kind of in Price Hill and Camp Washington area. And so we were there, and it was just a service trip. Uh, we, we, all we did was work. We'd work all day long. And then in the evenings, we'd serve a meal. And then after the meal, we just hang out with kids in the street. That's all it was. We stayed in those areas. But she did it for three days. And in that moment, Megan said to me, Jason, I love this. I said, well, Megan, if you love this, then why don't next year, why don't you try a trip, uh, an international trip where you can meet a missionary? And you can do this uh, in that setting. And the next thing you know, Megan went with us to Mexico City. Went to Mexico City. We spent 16 days in Mexico City with 12 students working with two different missionaries. We stayed in their homes. We lived with them. We did what they did. Uh, we did some service stuff, but honestly, it was a pure-blooded missions trip. Uh, they were giving their testimonies. They were talking with people. Uh, they were working in the churches and the cell groups. And after that week, after her freshman year of high school, uh, she came to me and she says, I think I could be a missionary. Because all week long, she had one question from me. Everyone in this room is going to contemplate, should I, not, not should I go, but where will I go? Will I, will I go to a foreign country? Will I go to somewhere domestically? Or will I go to the workforce and mobilize my resources and what I do for the mission field? That was, that's all we talked about. Well, the next summer, we took another 16-day trip, and this time uh, we went to Costa Rica. And she said, very similar experience. And then Megan comes and says, hey, I want to go back to Mexico City. And I said, Megan, you've already been to Mexico City. I said, how about I get you a 30-day internship as a junior in high school uh, to go to Ukraine and spend 30 days with this pro- thing called Project Sasha with this awesome missionary named Jody Hessler. And, I, and she was like, okay, let's do it. And so she went and spent 30 days in this country, and she came back before her senior year and said, I'm going to be a missionary. Uh, she then went off and uh, went to school to study missions, and now she is planting a church in Japan. Uh, that's the story of Megan. There is handfuls. Uh, the last count I had, there was 25 students that we have that are in different places all around the world, either planting churches or raising up people from those countries to plant churches or working in medical clinics all over the world. Uh, Megan's the reason I do youth ministry. Uh, the, the reason that I get up every single day passionate about students still is because there is hundreds or thousands of students, no matter where you live, who are outside of faith, that are hungry for something, 
And when they taste who Jesus is, and if we can put them on the right path, they will end up mobilizing other people to change the world. Or, we can give them Jesus, but not give him his mission. And ultimately, we're not giving them Jesus. We're giving them a place to sit. And a place to listen. See, I really believe that if you look at the church today, you'd think that the Great Commission said sit and listen versus go and make. And I think it's our jobs, no matter what we're doing, to help mobilize a generation of people to go all over the world and serve them. Uh, now, here's the deal. Uh, I'm going to talk you through kind of the way in which we did youth ministry. Now, I am, I am a, there's lots of different types of people who work with youth. There's some people who work with youth and have a very small group of people, and they think the reason that we have a small group of people is because we really care about discipleship and mission, and so because of that, for some reason, the mission doesn't include the high school in their local town. So it doesn't really make sense to me. There's other groups of, of churches or people who work with students who have a very large group of students who come hang out and play dodgeball every week, and no one has ever mobilized to share their faith outside of their own city. And so to me, the thing that God has put on my heart with student ministry is the mission starts today, but the mission never ends until he comes back. And ultimately, if we are not training and equipping students to serve in their own local schools, then why in the heck would we send them to a foreign country to do the same thing? Uh, And so that is kind of what's behind, if that makes sense, what I'm talking about today. And so I'm going to kind of walk you through kind of if you came in to be a youth leader uh, in the churches that I've worked in, Uh, Or even if you're in a parachurch organization, if you said, Jason, how would you mobilize students into mission? I'm going to tell you kind of how I've done it and how I would do it. And I know that it's not the only way. Don't hear me say that. I think there's lots of ways. But I do believe this has worked uh, in the the settings that I've been in. The first thing is this, and you kind of heard the story uh, already. uh, But really, mobilizing people into mission, the idea really is not new to this generation. It started with Jesus. If you look at Jesus' ministry, who did he grab? Did he grab people in their 40s and 50s? No, Jesus grabbed, like, youth. In fact, it was really youth, because in most foreign cultures, youth is till the age of 25 or 27, or until they get married. And you look at most of the apostles, they were, they were like youth, they were like high school kids. That was their ages. And I think the reason Jesus did that is because they have the ability to get passionate about something, run with it, and truly never look back. Uh, For me, when I preach a sermon to a group of adults, it doesn't mean it can't happen. But as soon as an an adult comes forward and says, man, I I really want to do this, I say, okay, this is what we need to do. This is how we can do this. And the first thing I say is, oh, I got this mortgage. I got this payment. I've got this car. I've got these kids. I've got you with me. And hear me say, I've got that mortgage. I've got that car. I've got those kids. And so I get it. But that's why students, there's this prime real estate in the kingdom of God when someone is the age of 12 to the age of 25, that God is just like, these students are screaming, mold me. Like, help me. Uh, they, they are so hungry. This generation, unlike any generation, no matter what culture in the world you're a part of, there's never been a generation more enthusiastic about being selfless. They're almost selfish to be selfless. Because they tweet about it and text about what, how they're selfless all the time, which is kind of crazy. But they want to serve. And so my thing is, is if we can mobilize them into that, that's where we're at. So the first thing I do is I don't believe, I'm going to make a couple statements here, I don't think someone can understand mission if they don't understand service. I think it's impossible. I think uh, you see Jesus teach his apostles that. In Luke 9 and 10, you see him mobilize them. You see him take them out by 12, then by 72. Uh, and what happens after Jesus mobilizes a generation? You remember in the passage, in the end of Luke 10? What does he say? He says, I see Satan fall from heaven. Like, when we will mobilize a group of people to reproduce kingdom values, Satan is defeated. But if all we do is hold on to our kingdom values and sit into our pews, or sit into our own organization, guess what? The kingdom's not further, the kingdom is stagnant. And so, the first thing that we do, and this is super simple, I apologize, I'm a dumb guy, but it's simple and it's worked. And the first thing is this, is it's just a one-day service. I also can't write very well. I'm a preacher, sorry. One-day service trips, okay? Then we go to two- to three-day service. All this is service-based. 
Here's another pet peeve I have that I'm not bagging on any organization because I don't know what you guys call things, but I'm just going to be honest. I think it is a crime to call something that is 100% service a missions trip. The reason is I think it sends the wrong message to students. Uh, A lot of students never want to be a missionary because they think all they're going to do all day is build houses. So that doesn't mean that calling something a it is missions to do lots of things. But to, to separate for students to help them understand in their like, abilities, hey, this is what service is, and it's the building block for mission. If someone doesn't have a heart for service, they're never going to have a heart for mission. Okay? So we do two to three day service trips. I'm gonna, this is like a leash. I'm dying here. Okay? The next thing after that then is we'll do usually week long, and those are in the USA. And the reason that is is because it makes me sick sometimes that we spend just as much money on short-term trips as we do global missions in general. Like, it's hard for me. Uh, I am obviously a person who's pro-short-term missions trips because I I lead them. But I'm also very careful to make sure the people that we are giving those experiences to are people we're trying to mobilize into mission versus someone just looking for a better Instagram page. Now, that doesn't mean I won't take that student, but it does mean they have to be vetted. Does that make sense? I'm going to be honest. Like, I had a student uh, last year here at Southeast that said, Jason, I want to go to Kenya. I said, okay, how many, like, tell me what you've done locally. I want to go to Kenya. It's like, okay, have you ever done a service project? No. Well, have you ever raked someone's yard? Nope. Have you ever raked your own yard? Uh-uh. So what do you do for, like, an allowance? My parents just give me money. They're going to pay for the trip to Kenya. It's like, awesome. How about this year, you spend a year doing local service stuff, and then next year we can talk about going to a, to a foreign country. And they're like, no, I want to go this year. I was like, ah, it doesn't matter. You're not going. And then mommy and daddy call me. They think I'm an evil person. I say, hey, there's lots of churches in town. Go find another one. No, I don't say that. <laughs> but I think it. Uh, and so, But no, I just say, I just talk to their, talk to their, because here's the deal is, when a student's first experience is that, they can't even process it. Uh, I mean, for me, there is places I've been in this world. I just got back from going to Djibouti. And if my first experience would have been working with the underground church, my head would have blown off. But because I have been all over the world working with lots of different people, it's still, my head still kind of blew off. But I can still process the information. And I'm a 38-year-old man who's done this for a lot of years, and we expect a 15-year-old to be able to hold these convictions the rest of their life? Are we kidding ourselves? So we do one-week trips in the U.S. A lot of these are even in our own backyard. Like, sometimes it hurts my heart when uh, people from Cincinnati want to go to Chicago to work in the inner city. And a youth pastor will say, well, we've got to get them out of their culture. Listen to me. If you're in a church in the suburb, Price Hill is a different culture. Here in Louisville, I mean, we, we want to get them out of Louisville. Listen to me, there's an interstate that runs right in the middle of Louisville, and if you go on one side of the interstate, it's a different culture. And so that's kind of our challenge with them. The next thing we do uh, is an international trip. Here's the thing that's going to upset people. Uh, I think your international trips with students should be no less than 10 days. Uh, I think that probably what's best is 16. And the reason that is is because they'll never experience any part of cultural shock until about day 8. And day 8 is the moment that if it's only 10 days, they're like, I can make it home. But if they have 8 more, they actually go through culture shock a little bit, and they come out of it on the other end, and you can kind of see, you know what, I think this person has the ability to do this. And then as a youth pastor, a youth leader, a trip leader, you can sit down with that person and say, hey, listen, you've got what it takes to do this. And to another kid, you can say, you should never leave the country again. No, that's not, well, maybe a little true. But, uh, but does that make sense? And then after that, really, is I think where internships come into play. And I think those are 30 days to three months. Now, sometimes, now you might say with students, well, what if all of our students have already done this? 
this is what I would say. I would take a couple steps back and make sure they understand service. Uh, for me, you have students like in a church setting for eight years, seven, eight years. And so for me, it works really well that in middle school, this is where we spend our time. Like our goal at Southeast is for every single middle school student to do at least a one-day service project before they become high school students. Every single kid will do service for one day. We would hope that a lot of them would do two to three day. Because if we can get them into high school and we can already plug them into week-long mission stuff, then we're cooking with gas. Does that make sense? And then you can take them on some international trips and give them different cultural experiences. Some students are, for us, we have two very different partners that we partner with. One is in, in Kenya and one is in Eastern Europe. Those are completely different things. They're both unbelievable things. And they both are in need of kingdom workers. And so if we can give a junior one experience and a sophomore one experience, or a junior and a senior, these two different cultural experiences, they also realize, you know, I think I'm more suited for Africa. Or I think God has suited me better for Eastern Europe. Or, you know what, I I think I want to go to a close country, and because of that, I need to go get a medical degree. Or does that, you with me? That's kind of the process we take students through. Uh, Here's one more story I want to tell you, and then I'll let you ask some questions. This student's name was Brett. Uh, He was a sophomore in high school when I got the phone call. And what happened was I got the phone call real early in the morning. I answered the phone, and uh, it was his dad on the phone saying, Karen just passed away. Karen was his mom. She had cancer. And I remember driving up to their house, and it was like your prototype American house. It had the American flag up front, the picket fence. I walked up to the house, and I saw Brett and Braden on the floor crying. I walked in, and I cried with them. Over the next year, we studied heaven. We studied where their mom was going to be, where she was. The next thing you know, they desired to dig into service a little more, and they kind of walked through this journey. And I remember uh, Brett did this first 16-day missions trip, and he just thrived. It was like a student I've never, like, it was like the kid could go to any culture, and he just fit. And I remember saying to him, Brett, you could, if this is something you're, you're, you could, you could do this, man. And so then he does this internship for 30 days. He does it in Costa Rica. He goes to a language school while he's there. And he comes back and he knows he can do it. I know he can do it. And he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. And this is what he kept telling me. I don't think that's what God wants. I was like, awesome. He goes, so I'm going to commit to this. As a senior in high school, he sat down and said, the first five years I graduate from college, I'm giving 50% of my money to kingdom work. So he went to school and graduated from the University of Illinois with an accounting and economics dual major in four years, which doesn't happen. He got a job in downtown Chicago making six figures and shared an apartment with four other dudes because he couldn't afford anything more. Why? Because 50% of all of his checks went to support kingdom work. After those five years, now Brett has moved back to Champaign-Urbana. He lives on the north side of town in a house ministering to the urban poor. And he still works and he also goes part-time to a seminary because he thinks God might be at this point calling him to something different. Here's the deal. Kingdom work looks different with everybody. It's, the success story is not just a church planner in Japan or a person uh, raising up doctors in East Africa or Northeast Africa, or it's not just a missionary in Latin America. It's not just a youth pastor. It's not a senior pastor. It's not a children's pastor. Kingdom worker looks different for everybody because the king is one, but the citizens are all very different. And we as citizens look different. And so to me, that's the last thing I want to point out is the success of this like on-ramp, or really what it is is an assimilation process. But the success of this is not a person living in a foreign country. The success of this is a person waking up every day, engaging the Lord through prayer and kingdom work. The success of this is someone who walks into a church and pushes on a church every single day to say, are we truly part of kingdom things, or are we just sitting and listening? The the success of this is a person who walks into the workforce and sees everyone as the mission field. That is what God has called all of us to raise up. And I think that this is, this is the missions element of what we do, or what I've done. There's another whole assimilation process, or I hate to call anything a discipleship process because it's not a process, it's a life. 
But the reality is that it's the same with, we have areas in youth ministry that are absolutely just fun. And we don't make any excuse because we want kids to have fun. And then we journey with them spiritually until we're offering them internships for deeper spiritual formation on that level too. Does that make sense? And so uh, that's kind of what I've done, what I've been a part of. There's so much more to talk about. But I for sure wanted to give you guys time to ask questions. Uh, and even like context. If it's like, hey, here's the context I'm in. What do you think about this? I, once again, am not an expert. Uh, but I've been able to be a part of youth ministry on almost every continent. And I just am passionate about it. And so, any questions you have or thoughts? Go ahead. I work with high school and college students. And, and when you have them junior eye on, you can go through a process yep. like this. But I, I have a lot of college students and seniors who have never been on a mission Good. Yep. Yep. Good question. The first thing I would say is, uh, Can you the yeah. Basically, let's say you have two years. So this is like a seven-year process. What if you're a college pastor and a kid comes in for two years? Or for me, what if a kid shows up second semester of senior year? Does that make sense? Like, what happens if you only have someone for a couple years? Well, the first thing is, is I don't think the, uh, you're not failing if you have a kid for two years and they haven't done a 60-day internship. What I would say is you assess where they're at within kingdom stuff and you start them on this journey. But the reality is you find a 23-year-old college student or 22-year-old college student, chances are if they're showing up in your place, for them to get some service experiences rather quickly is very feasible. For them to do a spring break trip, sooner rather than later, or even do a, a two-day or three-day service thing where they're experiencing some of that stuff and they can experience a different culture. And then to get them international, I, I do think it's crucial uh, that we know the world because we have a global God. Uh, it just makes me sick to my stomach, honestly. That's, I probably should be sadder, but it only kind of makes me angry, just to be honest, that we have so many pastors across the country that literally have... This, this is a global book. This book was not written... By an American, you know? And the more, like, I don't even know how you teach it without understanding the people it was written to. And so, there's, that's why there's so many self-help-based churches in our culture today, is because we try to take lessons and, and things that are global lessons and try to put them into the context of the United States, and they're honest, it ain't there. Uh, and so, to me, that's what I do, is I just, I would assess it, and I would create it. And the other thing, too, though, is sometimes you'll graduate a high school kid who just does this. Uh, or let's say you have a college student who does a week-long thing with you. And then it's like, hey, you know what? Next year, would you be willing to do this with us next summer? I know you're getting this job, or I know you're going off to this. Would you be interested in helping us lead? Do those kind of things. But, and ultimately, it is not our jobs to bring people to fruition. It's our jobs to be partnering with them on the way. Uh, and so sometimes it's okay. Some of your guys' organizations literally fulfill one of these areas. That's awesome. But I think my challenge to someone who, an organization that just does international trips, is have a vetting process that's greater than can they afford it. Uh, Good. Okay, there's tons of questions. I'm going to go over here now. Go ahead. So, um, I appreciate your comments about motivating next generation workers. Yep. I saw the title said, Next Generation Leaders. Yep. I was sort of interested uh, do you have any uh, suggestions or ideas on how you equip them not only to be workers, but to be leaders? That's a good question. And my qu- first question, how would you define the difference between worker and leader? That's my first question so I can answer it better. Well, I think at some level we can all be workers, but they're usually following somebody who's sort of out in front, you know, being um, having some courage to kind of good. go places and then to equip others to kind of be a part of that. Good stuff, good stuff. The first, first statement I'm going to make, I'll just show you this how – how I do it, I'll show you. But the first thing I'll say is, uh, leadership to me, uh, there's a lot of books you can read on leadership. Uh, I had a friend in Kenya tell me once, uh, I don't understand why people try to turn pastors into leaders versus leaders into pastors. God has somehow naturally gifted some people that people follow. Like, I have, I have read very few leadership books, but for whatever reason, God's given me a grace. And that grace is, for whatever reason, people follow me. In high school, they followed me into tons of trouble. Like, I mean, I led people into sinful things. Like, because people are going to follow me. And, and the reality is there is something that God put on me. Now I hopefully lead people into righteous things. But on the flip side is there is something that we do. Okay? And I'll talk you through it real quick. Leadership, 
a leadership development process. Uh, this is, I'm going to use an example by a guy named Dan Spader. But here it is, is in this chair is like a person who doesn't know Jesus. Okay? Uh, and then there's this crossover point where they become a believer. Okay? This is leadership development Jesus style, in my opinion. I think we can teach them how to read books and talk to them about purple cows and all those kind of things. But ultimately, to me, it's about journeying with Jesus. The first thing is they become a believer. Now, here's the deal is probably 80 to 90 percent of all of your churches are people that never leave this chair. They're believers. They believe in God. They show up. They sit. They listen. They might even give some money towards it. Then there's this next chair that's called worker. That's what we're talking about. We're raising them up to be workers. But reality is, if you're spending 60 days in the field, you are getting a taste of what it means to be a multiplier. And really, that's what a leader is. A leader is someone who multiplies who they are and gathers people to go with them. And so this phase into worker, what churches most of the time do is they raise up workers to sustain what they do, right? Hey, come serve in the nursery. Hey, come serve with students. Hey, come on this trip. But then we never release those people to truly be leaders in a church. Because here's the truth is, what, how many opportunities does your church really have to lead? Very few. And so if we don't challenge people into leadership, what that means is, well, then who's going to work in the nursery? How about the 80% of your church that never leaves the believer chair? And so what we really do is we constantly, you're journeying with them on this. This isn't large-based things. Like for us, trip-wise, you're dealing 10 to 20 students. And so it is, it is absolutely equipping-based ministry where the whole time you're challenging them, what is God calling you to? What is he moving you to? What is he doing this to? And then people just fall into this thing where God's called me to lead people. He's called me to do this. And some people, <coughs> God is equipped to be workers, and they, just, and they lead in their home. But guess what? The world was changed not by people, not by preachers. Ephesus, when Paul went into Ephesus, Paul was only there for two and a half years. Ephesus was changed by workers. And now they were leaders, but they, they weren't the stand on the stage preachers. What happened to the apostle? Paul ditched. And within a hundred years, Ephesus became like a city of Christians. And when he went into it, there was nobody there. And so, to me, the leadership development phase for me is the individual journey that you go on with them. That's why it's crucial if you're working in a church that those students have a relationship with an adult that journeys this whole process with them. Because the adult is the one that pushes them into the next... This is even the word that we use. Matt McGuire's in here. He works with me in youth ministry. They heard me say this all the time. Because I think that's what Jesus said all the time. What's next? What's next? Like for me in my life, my, where's my wife out? God moves us into something, and my, my question, as soon as it's over, is, well, what's next? Because that's what leaders think. It's a journey that we're on pursuing Jesus, and if there's not something next we move them to, they come to a Sunday morning church service. If you don't give them a next, guess what? They'll sit and listen forever. But if you give them a next, they'll go. And then if you give them a next, they'll go. And then eventually some of them might never be missionaries, but their next is investment, both financially and and also with their time. And the next thing you know, they're reaching down into lost people and journeying with them. Does that make sense? I hope that answers your question a little bit. Okay, go ahead. Unfortunately, not every parent, including strong Christian parents, are supportive of their children going into full-time missions. Megan's dad uh, threatened to kill me. He was a small dude. I wasn't really scared. Uh, in fact, I kind of wanted to wrestle him at that point. Uh, when a student is... Under the age of 18, their parents are the boss. And I respect them. I affirm them. Uh, I encourage them to affirm their parents. Uh, But ultimately, as soon as that student is 18 years old, legally, they can make decisions for themselves. And so when Megan made that decision, she walked away from her dad paying for an education anywhere she wanted to go to go to some place that he wouldn't pay for. And so she had to take out loans. But then what did I do? Uh, I encouraged her dad to do not do that. But then I found people in the church to help resource her college stuff. By the time she was a junior in college, her dad was still a non-Christian, but he saw that it was for real and he started paying for education. Uh, But at the same time, I think uh, so many students, most students walk away from the calling God has placed on them because mommy and daddy are scared. And... uh, then they live. That doesn't mean at any point in time God can't still use them. But man, uh, I'm so glad God has called me out of mediocrity. 
And uh, that doesn't mean I don't slip into mediocrity. I like the TV too. Uh, but that's what I do. I mean, we journey with them, we encourage them. But then when a kid is old enough, they can make their own decisions. And when they do, then you become a support system. That's like me. I'm like a dad. Uh, I'm like a 38-year-old dad to 25-year-olds. It's crazy. You're not, 25 is an exaggeration, but 24-year-olds. And uh, I've got... I've got a, that was funny. I'm glad you caught it. So, uh, but I've got you know NFL players and call it, and NBA players, and I've got missionaries, and I've got bankers, and I've got teachers. I've got garbage collectors that still text me all the time saying, "Hey Jason, what's your plan for Thanksgiving?" Because that's what they ain't got no home. Some of these brothers got millions of dollars, and they still call me for a prayer request. And they got every preacher in town wanting them to come to their church. That's part of the problem. But does that make sense? It's like sometimes as, as leaders, what do leaders do? We step in to lead those students until they're ready to go on their own. And that's why probably most of the people in this room have other kids that aren't their kids that turn to them all the time. Because you're a leader. Okay? Other questions? Yep. Good. Good question. Uh, first thing is we do, what, what I've done in the past is at least one overnighter with the students that are going to kind of get to know each other. In most settings, the students already know each other a little bit. If they don't, they get to know each other. The second thing we do is we have them research the culture they're going to, just so they understand the culture. So they might write a paper on the culture, those kind of things. And that's even part of the application process for us sometimes is, hey, you are going to uh, Cuba. I want you to write a, a you know, a two-page paper on Cuba and its history and its culture. Uh, and they turn it in. You talk to them about it. Uh, that's part of it. The other part, too, is at any point in time, we can say, hey, you're not going on the trip. If we don't feel like the student's going to be obedient. Uh, that's, I didn't even mention that. But the reality is you can't take a kid. The most dangerous thing a parent could ever do is give you their child. International missions trips, like, it's the most dangerous thing you do in youth ministry. By far. Even more dangerous than me throwing a rubber dodgeball at you. I mean, it's dangerous. And so that's nothing to do. Now, continued relationship, what we do is we actually encourage our students uh, to not create tons of, like, relationships that are going to be with, with the people within that culture. Uh, if Because the reality is those students in three months will forget about those individuals, and it just hurts the culture they go to. So we try to encourage them to do is, hey, we're going to do group projects over the next year to still work with them. We'll send letters to them as a, as a group. But we try not to have tons of different Facebook friends because all it does is hurt the culture you're going to. So that sounds goofy, and most of the time the students don't listen to me. So it already happens. The other thing we do is how do we get contact with those missionaries is relationships that I have. Uh, and so it's like going to a conference like this, you meet someone. Uh, but the one thing for me is uh, no matter what any missions organization tells you, the reason why they'll take Americans into that culture is because they want to help raise up Americans, one. Two is because it helps funding. Uh, and the third thing is sometimes you actually offer something, but most of the times we just slow them down. Like we can act like that's not the case, but it's just true. And I think sometimes, like, man, we, we blessed them so much. We went and built this house. Oh, you don't think they can build a house, y'all? Come on now. Yeah, that's right. And, and, but at the same time, uh, just like we are passionate about raising up a generation, so are missionaries. And so what I try to do is I try to find a, mission, I try to find a missionary that's good with students, that cares that will spend time with them. Because uh, sometimes you can take them on a trip and the missionary is a complete jerk. Well, that's not what you want. And some missionaries are jerks to students. That's okay. That's why they're there versus here. That's okay. I mean, it's just all of us are different. You with me? It's just it's, we have different skill sets. So I try to find people that are good with both, and they can, they can work in both settings. So that's some of the stuff we do. Uh, the other stuff we do is we set up, uh, like, like we'll have, you know, like schools have sister schools. Uh, we have sister youth ministries. That like once the, the youth group will go there, the youth ministry will go there, and then over the next four years they'll say, hey, we're having this event, will you pray for us? And so then during a communion meditation we say, hey, this week we are going to pray for uh, the, the churches in Thika, and we're going to pray because they're having a, a rally this weekend, and we're going to pray for them on Sunday. So we try to integrate as much global stuff into our services 
Because then it continues the mindset of the world is more important than, the kingdom is more important than me. So that's the stuff. Other questions? Yes, in the back. Yeah, good question. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good. It's really you guys ask the same same question: worker versus leader. A leader goes home and applies it consistently. To me, it's the journey you're on with them. It's the thing why it's so crucial. If you work for an organization. And you're leading students on trips, and your job is to organize those trips. It is crucial. Like part of the process is even who's going on you that you're going home with. They can hold you accountable to a lifestyle change, to those changes on a daily basis. Because here's the deal: uh, if I'm the same way, we're all we're all the same way. And for us to expect a 15 year old to be different than us sometimes is a hard expectation. At the same time, it's still not an expectation we should go walk away from. Uh, what I've seen too, like what we've done, what we've done in the past to fix this, is we create journals. Uh, we'll do like a 16-day journal while they're on the trip, or a 10-day journal while they're on the trip, and then we'll do a 30-day journal when they get home. So actually, more of the journal has to do with when they're home than with when they're there. And that journal then walks them through, hey, you did this on your trip. Look back to day four. What did God teach you? How is he teaching you the same lesson today on day 20 being home? Those kind of things are big deals. Because part of it is, uh, it's helping connect dots. That's why it's crucial that the, 17, the 16-year-old who's never been on a service project doesn't start here. Because I'm just being honest, they can't connect the dots. Like those dots are too far apart. Uh, like I remember the first time I went to India and I and I saw like like uh, slavery or I saw like a leper colony. If I would have done that on my first cultural experience, versus building a house in Juarez, like that trip, no matter what anyone thinks about it, it initiated something into me that the there's people in this world that matter. It was a big deal. And now if I would have only done that the rest of my life, I think that would have been not what God wanted. But it was a good step. Or the trips in Cincinnati to Camp Washington to rebuild a part of the city helped me realize, oh, this is what this looks like. Or even coming home, telling people about the trip. Uh, it's like uh, Plato's cave. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. It's like, it's like heaven. When John wrote about the heaven in Revelation, like I don't know if it's anything like what John said. Because John was trying to take something he saw and put it in the context that we can understand. That is how missions is described. Like when you come home to someone who's never left Shelby County, <clears throat> guess what? To say, well, I stayed in this like, I don't know. I stayed in this house that was a little different than your house. You know, it's like, now it's a little better now because actually the internet, you can see things. But it's still pretty hard. So does that help? Yeah. Yep. You know, uh, part of it is, I always tell a leader on a trip, so if you were coming to me and you were going to lead a trip, I tell you the first couple days or the first couple hours, let's say it's a one-day service experience, where what you're doing is cleaning out an abandoned crack house. It's not an exciting adventure. But the first couple hours, as a leader, I just encourage a little bit. But by the end of the day, I'm singing songs. Because there's a moment in every trip or service experience where everyone is done and it's your job to be in. And to raise the awareness that service is still what God's called us to. But here's the other part of it is, it's okay for students at times to experience hard and hardships. And just because it's hard and just because they don't like it, or even because it maybe uh, makes them feel less, that doesn't mean it's shameful. 
that means it's just a, a, a different kind of joy is found in it. Uh, like, to teach students to have joy when they are digging a hole that we're going to use for a restroom is encouraging them, and when they walk away, even if they're angry, teaching them through it. You know, I don't think that Jesus probably, in lots of ways, the stuff that he had to experience was skipping all the time. There was moments that it was like he was grinding. You with me? It was hard. And so those are some of the things we do. Uh, the other part, too, is if I'm being honest, the word shame is an oppressive word, and it's a word from the devil. Uh, and so anytime someone feels shame, it's a change of identity. And to me, then I speak identity into them. Like, no one's identity is found in what they do. And so to me, that's another thing is, you're right, that's a cultural thing, but students feel shame even when they're working on Wall Street. Uh, Because shame is something that Satan works to deceive us and to accuse us. And when we feel shame, we're being accused. And it's our job to speak against the evil one in those moments to speak life into those students. Does that make sense? Good question. I'm going to ask someone who hasn't asked yet. Go ahead. How does a 16-year-old pay for the cost of an international mission trip? Good question. Uh, usually what we've done in the past is on their first trip, we let there's a fundraising, like we would help them with fundraisers. They would send out letters to friends and family uh, and do those kind of things. Uh, they would usually work some for it. If they do a second trip, we make them pay for at least half their cost out of their own pocket. That's kind of, And it's just a way for us to say, does this really matter, or is this an Instagram world? Does that make sense? So that's what we would do. But we have no problem asking people for a student to have a, an international experience. I mean, I, in some ways, we're robbing the joy of some people to not be able to resource those things. So, but I think there's a line that's easily crossed of the kid you get a letter from every single year that goes to the same place. This is I shouldn't say this. This is going to sound. I think you got to be careful in the development stages of a student that a student doesn't so quickly fall in love with one culture because our job is to give them the whole, not the one. Uh, and they might end up back at the same one. That's okay. And your church might always go to the same spot. That's awesome. But release your student to go with another organization somewhere else. Does that make sense? I just think it's crucial. If a kid's really interested in doing those kind of things, they have to have different experiences. It's like if you hire a youth minister or pastor at your church, and you know he's only interned at one place forever, that's going to make you think, ah, I wish he had a couple more experiences. It's the same premise. Good. Other questions? What time is it? i got to... Ooh, we got 12 minutes. We're good. Right there. Um, so I plan medical mission trips, and I know what to do. College students and medical students, I don't know what to do with the middle school or high school. Yeah. That's a great question. Don't take them. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, now, here's the deal is, though, there uh, there are things you can do medically in different cultures, though, that they're probably fit. Anyway, uh, I've actually done some things medically in different countries, I think. There is no way they should let me do this. Uh, but, uh, no, I think, for me, with middle school students, it's like they could do a, a, a thing to serve medical things by helping, you know, serve, like, Serving a medical clinic by taking people's names. They can, uh, if there's a part of the medical clinic that needs to be resourced from the standpoint of like bringing different materials in and out of the room, or even like the idea of a lot of times when I've been in foreign countries and medical clinics, one of the major problems is you have all these, you have sick parents that come in and their kids have no place to go. So even having them outside running a VBS in the middle of a medical clinic or those kind of things, there's always something for them to do. And sometimes on the service end of it, it doesn't even matter sometimes. If their service, this is awful to say, is meaningful, they just need to learn to serve. Yeah. Talk a little louder. Yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah, good, good question. Other questions, right here. I'd like to hear your, your definition of service and mission. Uh, service, to me, like a definition, missions is an overarching thing. So to me, when I describe it to, like, a parents or on this process, a mission always deals with missionaries. A service could deal with, if you're doing a service project, 
It could serve a church. It could do whatever. But if you're going to go into a local inner city and work and work with a, a missionary in that community, then that's a missions experience because they're working with a missionary. Now, I know that's maybe bad, but to me it matters because if the end goal is to raise them up to be its leadership, the end goal is to just create a worker. They can do anything to train them to be a worker. If your end goal is a leader, they have to work with someone who's leading it and learn how to lead. Uh, for instance, a lot of the times for me with students is uh, it's okay to do service stuff. In fact, you have to. I still do service stuff. But if I want to raise someone up to be a missionary or if I want to raise someone up to work with an organization, they need to understand what it's like to live there. Uh, when I got here, one thing, me and Charlie Vitito, like, I remember the first time I walked into his office, he's the missions director here. Uh, at one point, they didn't have very many American missionaries that they were, like, partner, partner with. And I remember my first comment is, Charlie, I can't just take trips to people who, they need to see someone in the field sentence who looks like them. He goes, yeah, but those people don't do very good stuff. I know most of the time they don't. But we've got to find some of them out there who are doing great work so when they walk into a foreign culture, they see someone who's like them that they know I can do this too. And so that's kind of why it's such a big deal to me. I am pro- It's probably semantics. Hear me say that. I, it's not like I wouldn't, I'm only going to die on the, the line of Jesus. I'm not going to die on mission service stuff. But at the same time, when you're describing it to a parent, most people say, hey, we did a mission trip this weekend. We went and raked leaves. To me, it diminishes something that's better. Not better, something that we're calling them to. It's like I wouldn't say to, uh, that's really what the church does all the time, actually. I wouldn't call someone a disciple of Christ just because they show up in the building. Uh, you know, so it's like I think there's something like that we're missing when we're saying, hey, we, we're glad you're enjoying these service trips. We want to call you to something that's going to stretch you even further. It's going to stretch you physically and emotionally. It's going to stretch you physically. And I mean, seeing kids struggle with language as they're giving their testimonies and, and working with people in a foreign culture and them sharing their faith, they come back to their culture and all of a sudden it's like, uh, we just took some students to the Czech Republic a while back and we walked into English classes and we shared our faith. And that day they were like, oh man, this was the greatest experience of my life. Da, 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 da. And I go, hey, I got one question. Uh, how many of you have an English class back home? So why don't we do that at home? That's a mission. It's like, oh, okay. So that's how I would define it. And that may be garbage, and I apologize if it's garbage. You can rate me poorly if you want. I don't care. So, good. Another couple questions, and we've got to roll. Good question. I'm going to give you this from an absolute, like, overarching perspective. The first thing is this, is I would make sure on my trip that's not my majority because you can't have the scales tip that direction. But if we have, if I'm taking 14 students and three of them are that student, I'm like, come on. Because the Jesus is going to rub right off and their lives are going to be transformed. But would I take 10 of those and four of the other? I would not. Because it's just like any other team, you can't let it tip in the wrong direction. So that would be my advice. I think sometimes, uh, but some of the most, I mean, we have had students who, like I took a trip once we were working with orphans <coughs> in uh, Simferopol in the Crimean Peninsula. It's now, I don't even know what it is, kind of Russia, I guess now. Uh, it used to be Ukraine. And there's this girl that I'm pretty sure when I picked her up at the airport, was, was hungover. Like, I'm not pretty sure I know because I know what a hangover looks like. I've heard what a hangover looks like. And so, and so anyway, so I pick her up at the airport, and uh, I'm just thinking, how is this girl on this trip? And that night I assess the group. There's ten other students, and I realize, man, nine of these students are like, gonna, like they're world changers. And I got this one girl, and the whole trip, listen to me, I was with her for 30 days. And 24 of those days, I about sent her home. On day 25, she gave her testimony. Five students who've been hearing about the gospel for three or four years in this orphanage, five of them came to Christ, and she baptized them in the Black Sea. And her life was changed. And I was like, that's who Jesus is. He always uses that guy, you know, which is awesome. It's an unbelievable thing. Like, he wants to flex his muscles and show us it's not about our talents and our gifts. But 
you can't tur- the trip can't turn on you. And sometimes all of us have probably led a trip that's turned, and you don't want to do that. So that would be, is that good? Is that okay? Oh, a couple other questions, and then if you want to ditch, you can, and I'll stick around and ask some questions, uh, answer questions if you want. So I got four minutes for some more questions. If you got any more. Oh, we're going to get out late night asking more questions. That's good. Yeah. I think uh, I want to ask something more about the internship or the yep. three-day or three-month program. There seems to be a desire on both parts, senders and receivers, to make it a win-win experience. Yep. In the vast, vast majority, it turns out to be a lose-lose experience because, one, the missionary ends up seeing these people as hoping to do some good stuff, but, in fact, they're a big burden. Yeah. Okay? And so they say, you know, I just don't need the extra work for the No, for sure. And likewise, for most of the young adults, they want to go because they want to I'll say change the world, you know, they want yeah, to do yeah. something significant, yeah. and then they go off for 30 days, and, you know, they're doing book work, or they're yeah. making, building the trains, or whatever. So, what do you do to kind of move a lose-lose situation to a win-win situation? The first thing I would say is the vetting. I hate using those kind of words, but I think it, it's real. Is like, I would never recommend to LIA, as an organization I work with, a student who I didn't know was going to do great. Because the last thing I want them to have to deal with is that kid for 30 to 60 days. Okay. Uh, the second thing, though, is I think with the student, uh, the most powerful internship I ever had in my life, I spent three months in a garage folding T-shirts. I hated it. Hated it. I graduated towards the top. Of my class. I think I am walking on water as a 22-year-old. I could have went to lots of places to work, to preach, to teach. And I went to this place because I thought I was going to get a win-win. And I walk in there, and those brothers put me in a garage, and I folded T-shirts for three months. And about, month, about a month and a half into it, I walk into this guy's office, and I said, you know, I just don't know if my gift set's being used, which this generation will say that. And I, but it took me a month and a half, which actually I think is kind of impressive. <laughs> And he looked at me and he just said, is this a hard issue? I said, what do you mean? He goes, did you come here this summer to serve? Well, yeah, but this is different than I thought. I'm just asking you a question, Jason. Is this have to do with your heart or does this have to do with what we're asking you to do? Is this too lowly for you? And I was just sitting there like, oh, my gosh. I couldn't even, like, get out of the room fast enough. So I get out of the room and I go back to the basement where I'm folding t-shirts by myself, crying as a 22-year-old. And a month and a half later, uh, I walked into his office and just told him how much I appreciated it. And this is what he said to me. Hey, next summer, I'd love for you to come and speak for us all summer. He said, Jason, I can't put a 22-year-old on stage without another heart. Because I will ruin you by giving you accolade. You know, like, I will ruin you by you doing well i got to make sure you can serve. Those dudes, that organization, changed my life. Now, I'm not, I think we should vet the missionaries too. But I'm telling you, a lot of these kids were just, are just like me. They're arrogant turds that think they know better than everybody else. And what they really need is to spend three months in a garage not being the centerpiece of attention. I'm telling you right now, my wife wouldn't have married me if I wouldn't have had those three months. This church never would have hired me. You wouldn't want to listen to me. Because me and that was a breaking point for me. Uh, and it was a big deal. So, But at the same time, I would vet both. But sometimes we think things that aren't a win are really the greatest win for the kingdom. Because sometimes us broken down is where God wants us. So. I also hear you saying you're aligned expectation. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, really it's hard. Because yeah. if you want to go out there and make a difference, you're just going to be full That's of right. you're going to say, I'm not making a difference. That's right. I agree. But I think, too, it's defining what's a difference. You know, anything else before we wrap up? And I'll pray. And if you want to stick around, I'll answer questions and I'll take the the leash off. Cool. Uh, Let me pray for you. Uh, Dear God, thank you so much for this group of people who care about who you are. God, I uh, want you to know that uh, we love you. And God, I pray for all the students that are represented by the adults in this room or even the college students in this room that work with people who are younger than them. God, I pray you give them wisdom, give them discernment in how to raise up a generation of people to be kingdom workers and leaders. Uh, Lord, we love you, and we're so grateful for this conference. And God, I'm grateful that everywhere I go in the world, I run into someone that's been to the GMHC. 
And just what a blessing that is. And God, we just praise you for that. We praise you that you have come into this world uh, to save us. And God, we are asking you to come back quickly because we're ready to go home. And Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. And I'll be up here if you want to talk about it for a while.